Well, it's wonderful to be at a festival. Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? Less than two years. <laughs> um, I was for many years uh, director of Port Elliot Festival, and so this every year I would work my, my, you know, myself up into the excitement of having a weekend in July where hundreds of people would gather together and talk about books and other things. And of course, we've been robbed of that experience, partly because Port Elliot no longer exists, uh, but partly because of what's happened in the last 18 months. So it's just great to see so many people in a room together coming to listen to an author and, you know, getting out there and forgetting about what's been happening, I think. That's the main <laughs> thing. Um, I'm going to do a quick advert, which is also that I am launching a book festival in Falmouth, which is kicking off in October, uh, the middle of October. Now, I've just driven here from The Lizard, which is an hour and 45 minute drive, and I know that Falmouth is about as far away as that, so it may be that no one can make that journey. But if you fancy, fancy spending a day or two in Falmouth uh, on the weekend of the 16th and 17th of October, please do come down and join us. We've got some great authors mm -hmm. on the lineup. I've, I've got some posters that I've brought with me, uh, which will go up in the bookshop, and um, you can find out a bit more about that online. Um, but yes, if you can come along to that, that would be great. But let's put that to one side. Um, we are here today to talk to Amanda Craig, um, who has written 10 novels. Well, it's a debatable, it's whether you count a novella as a novel. Let's count it as a, no a Let's novel. Let's count 10. <laughs> <laughs> Max Porter's written three, three books recently that don't even count as novellas, and they've been counted yeah, as, as novels. Well. So uh, we'll, call, we'll call it a novel. Um, and the latest of which is The Golden Rule, which is on sale in the bookshop, um, which I've had the great pleasure of reading this summer. And um, I'm not going to say too much about it. I'm going to briefly introduce Amanda. Uh, I'm going to have a conversation with her for about half an hour, and then I'm going to open questions to you in the audience for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And then that'll probably bring us around to about the hour. Um, but I'll start by just giving you a very brief introduction. Uh, our protagonist is Hannah, and she is going through a terrible divorce from a wretched husband. Sadly. <laughs> he's, pretty, he's pretty irredeemable. Um, and she <laughs> he's pretty irredeemable. Yes, he is pretty irredeemable. Um, and her mother is dying. Uh, and she is, Hannah is from Cornwall, and her mother is living in Cornwall in a, a fictional town um, called St Piran, mm. and Hannah has to jump on a train. She has to spend two hundred and eighty pounds <laughs> on a train ticket because Which that is, is what a train ticket costs. That is what a train ticket costs if you turn yeah. up at Paddington at the last yeah. minute. And uh, is making her way down to Cornwall to see her dying mother and meets someone on the train. Shall I? Shall I let you pick it up from here? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, just just to do another sort of slight. Um, Gamble, some of you may possibly have read another, a previous novel of mine because they're all interlinked, but you can read them all independently called The Lie of the Land, which is also about a divorcing couple set in Devon, um, where I mostly live. Um, and when I was researching what people go through in, in divorce, I talked to a lot of my girlfriends who suddenly, around about the age of 50, all found that you know their husbands had been unfaithful, or they just couldn't stand it any any longer, and they uh, mostly the former, I should say. Um, but one thing that really struck me was that one after another, they all said in in their kind of awful agony, which was terribly, terribly upsetting to um, witness and, and listen to, was that it would be so much easier to be a widow. 
And when the third one said this, I thought, I've got to write this story. <laughs> um, it's so grim. So um, that was the trigger for um, this book, The Golden Rule. So um, Hannah, who's very poor and who's scraped together the money, finds herself beckoned into the first class carriage of the Paddington to Penzance train. And she meets this very beautiful but slightly mysterious woman called Ginny, and they get into conversation. It became clear that Ginny, or rather her husband, must have a second home in Foll, the town where the rich moored their yachts and the second homeowners spent their summers. Hannah was well acquainted with it because ever since she was old enough to hold a Dyson, she'd earned money cleaning their houses. Foll was all that St Piran was not, wired up with the latest technology, four by four cars, pretty shops and waitress deliveries. In this Cornwall, everything was lovely apart from the Cornish. <laughs> Hannah had grown up hearing her friends and family described as those ghastly people. The Cornish were, were used to being called odd and worse than odd, stuck out into the Atlantic like the bunioned foot of Britain, cut off by the Tamar with the language and superstitions of their own. They were halfway to Elfland, even without the legends bowdlerized by tourism. To Hannah, it mostly came down to this. Her mother couldn't afford to feed her all the protein that made Jake and his kind grow tall. She sighed and leant back in the wide grey seat. If I could always travel like this, I don't think my marriage would matter, or not so much. Money does take the edge off some things, yes, but the rest is the same. They slipped past small towns, a canal, field after field, Oxide daisies and cow parsley lined the track, billowing in the wind. The whole countryside was frothing like milk coming to the boil. Not so long ago, it had taken a decision that filled city people with shock and horror. They were still travelling towards its consequences. Hannah dreaded seeing her relations, not just for the usual reasons, but because of this. She had never felt more alienated from them. It was yet another reason why she could not go back to Cornwall. Sorry, to live in Cornwall. Um, so they go on and Ginny says how much she hates her husband. My divorce is taking forever. I wish he were dead. So much simpler to be a widow. Hannah felt a violent lurch as if the train had suddenly switched tracks. Yes, I think every woman in our situation feels that. I'd kill mine if I thought I could get away with it. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Hannah gave an ironic laugh. Yes, probably. Ginny sighed. It's such a relief to say it, isn't it? I've thought about it, Hannah said. The words almost burst out of her. Over and over and over. It's almost the only thing I think about some days. All at once, the train thundered into the first of the series of tunnels before Exeter. The air became brick and the noise deafening. Their reflections shone dimly in the black glass a parallel world of darkness and shadow. Ginny leant forward, her eyes bright, and mouthed, why don't we then? Um, so I don't know how many of you have read the book, um, 
but even from that reading, you can get the sense that there's this, um, well, there's a ref there is a reference specifically to this strangers on a train sort of Absolutely. setup. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, for those of you who've seen the Hitchcock film or read the book, um, I can't remember who wrote the book, actually. Patricia Highsmith. Of course it was, Patricia of course Highsmith. it was, yeah. Um, Famously um, misogynistic. Yes. Um, uh, but one of the things about your writing in general, I would say, is that you, know, you are a literary writer that seems to embrace this idea of plot very mm. strongly, mm. Uh, which is perhaps becoming a bit more fashionable now, but for a very long time has not been a fashionable thing. And I wonder whether you could speak a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. I could talk about it till the cars came home because for most of my writing life, which is now over 30 years, I've probably been the most unfashionable literary writer in Britain because I want to tell a story. Mm. And I think that readers want a story. You know, you don't just want, you know, a lovely writing style or even deep perceptions about human nature. You want something that keeps you reading, that takes you out yeah. of yourself. Um, and you know, it's been basically unfashionable to tell a story ever since Ian Forster said, yes, alas, yes, the novel tells a story. And the Bloomsbury Group basically tried to kill the story dead, except in children's literature, where I have a sort of um, special interest as well. Um, I think story is enormously important because even if we know that our actual real lives are not stories, we are story-making creatures. We're constantly telling stories, um, usually ones in which we ourselves are at the centre. Um, and we have people in our lives who we think of as heroes and villains. So I don't think it's something that's artificial. I think it's something that's terribly, terribly human and terribly important. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who, in the last terrible couple of years, has turned to stories for comfort and relief you know we we need this stuff yeah I, it's funny i've i've always found the most one of the most annoying phrases um that people use in conversation is that everything happens for a reason because <laughs> because you know <laughs> life is so catastrophic for so many people and also life is so chaotic but actually in literature one of the great you know, one of the great redeeming aspects of it, one of the great joys of it, is that everything does tend to happen for a reason, and that you're, you're, you're carried along through a story. As you say, you mentioned <coughs> children's writing. Now, I, fam I, f I first became aware of you, I think. I was working at Bloomsbury in the late 1990s, mm. and of course you were a very early champion of the first Harry Potter books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you were a, a reviewer of children's writing for some time. Uh, and I wondered whether or not your enjoyment of children's literature was in part because of that, because there's no, there's no artifice in a way. You can't hide with children's mm. writing. You, no. can't, you, you can't you know, make it all about the writing and, and drop the idea of, of story. It has to, has to work on that level. Is, that, is there a degree yes, of truth in that? Yes, absolutely. And, and children, when they start reading, are very unaware of, of style and craft. They mm. just want to read the story. And I think that's something actually very pure and beautiful. Um, and also actually very therapeutic. I mean, I'm a, I've spent my life as an as a absolute addict of reading. I'm sure many people here have as well. Uh, and I think that reading literally saved my life because I'm a chronic asthmatic. And I found as a small child that when I read a story that had me completely gripped, my lungs would miraculously open. You know, there's a lot to do with asthma, that's to do with relaxation, and my mm. heartbeat would go down. 
and they kind of kept me alive. So I feel all sorts of things about the importance of stories, but one of them is that they can literally save your life. Um, I think many people who are depressed have often found their way out of depression through stories. Um, you know, I just, I just can't understand why the literary world thinks that it can dispense with story because to me it's the great, it's not just a craft, and I have every admiration for craftspeople, it's also the great art. Without stories, you know, what you write is not going to survive. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about book events as well. There's a, I mean, it's great that we're all here and I love book events, um, but sometimes you can look at the sorts of people that go to book, book events and you wonder what their motivations are for going and there's a sort of aspirational thing and there can often be a sort of chattering classes thing about the world of book events. No offence meant to anybody in the audience. <laughs> but, but going to a children's book event, if a, ch if a children's author is good at what they do, there is no child in the audience that has any sort of no agenda <laughs> agenda no, going on. They are the either captivated or yeah. they are not. I remember the first time I saw a children's author doing that and just was utterly blown away by it. Yeah. It's also interesting to hear what you say about um, about you know the pleasure that, that we can get from reading and also the sort of mental health aspects of it. You know, people have been buying more books over the last eighteen months. I think as a yes, result of, of, of lockdown, and there is a lot of solace to be had. Yes, but I mean, one of the things I should also say about The Golden Rule is that this is very much a novel about reading and about how you can think that your life um, could follow the pattern of a novel or an author that you admire, because Hannah is tremendously um, passionate about Jane Austen and all the mistakes she <laughs> sadly makes in her life and her, and her choice of husband come from this. Now, I've known people who have done this, and mm. you know, it does not end well. Not as badly as when their favorite novel is Anna Karenina. <laughs> but you know, it, it's not a good idea. Um, and you know, everybody in this book, in some ways, is, is influenced. Even her little daughter, Maisie, who becomes, who's six years old, and she falls in love for the first time, I'm sure you <coughs> remember that, with a children's book, which is set in Cornwall, called Green Smoke. Um, and this, this obsession that the little girl had leads her into terrible danger, which you know, in the climax of the book becomes very clear. So at the same time as reading being wonderful and magical and therapeutic, it has enormous dangers too. You, know, you can be so sucked into it that it's almost like a kind of fugue state. You can certainly make life decisions that are the wrong ones, that are quite clearly wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you could argue that the, the, the wisdom that we accumulate in life, those of us who are avid readers, you know, some, some people have religion and they have <laughs> sacred te texts and others yeah. of us, you know, refer to books that we've read and think, you know, that's how we build our moral framework in yeah. some respects for good or for, for ill. There's a wonderful, um, I love the way you write about books and bookishness in the, in the book, actually, and, the, and the, the character who's the bookshop owner and that little world that he's created there is... Um, the ideal bookshop. It is just the ideal yes. bookshop, which is a lovely thing. Um, the other thing to say is, obviously you are a sort of master of plot and structure, but also this, this book's been described quite rightly, I think, as a state of the nation novel. Mm. Um, and I wondered how you approach 
that as well. You know, this is a, it's a book that explores various very important contemporary themes. And you're a journalist, or have been a journalist for a significant part of your life. And I wonder how the journalism feeds into that idea, and also just mm. whether you're ever wary of being preachy or having too much of an agenda or of, of, of that kind of social uh, analysis taking over the storytelling? Well, the social analysis bit is, is very, a very tricky balance mm. to strike. And I know uh, I would hate to think that I was preaching. Um, you know, I I'm, 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 I'm not my character's good. Um, but yes, I am a State of the Nation novelist, and there are several other novels that I've written that are also part of this whole sequence. I mean, one of the people who I absolutely love is Trollope um, and, and Dickens, and, and I'm very happy that I'm often compared to them. I also share their love of plot and, indeed, conflict. Um, journalism is a different bit of your brain, I think. I mean, what, what I do do um, when I'm building up the characters is I do quite often formally interview people, a lot of people, you know, for, for a particular character. Um, but more than anything, like a journalist, I suppose, I just look and observe and listen. Um, you know, I, I do absolutely love people watching and, and find out a lot from that. But the, at the centre of the Golden Rule, is this thing that we've all become tremendously aware of recently, which is um, the property market and the way that local people can no longer afford to live in the places where they grew up, which is um, really disastrous. I mean, I think it's, it, it's kind of poisoning our society and it's creating this, it's deepening this abyss between rich and poor, which has been growing throughout our lifetimes. Um, I'm really, really worried about it. And I think, you know, we should all be worried about it for even just for selfish reasons. When you know, when you have teachers who can't afford to live near where they work, where you have uh, not only nurses who are traditionally um, not valued enough, but GPs. You know, mm. I heard last month about there's a vacancy in Foy for a GP. You know, really lovely. You know, one of the nicest places you could possibly live. No, they can't find anybody because nobody can afford to live there anymore. And I don't know what the solution is, apart from perhaps get rid of Airbnb, which I know for some people is a kind of vital stream of income. But, you know, this is a nightmare. So Hannah, when she goes back to, you know, where her family has lived, she's, she lives in a place called St. Piran, which is very close, basically, to St. Austell. And just up the coast is this very, very pretty, dentified place, which I call Fol, which is very like Foy. And there is this conflict between these two places. Um, and again, you know, we need, you know, we need as a country, we need as a community, we need rich people to come and rent places and buy stuff and spend money. And, spend money. and in some ways, what's happened in the last two years has been absolutely great for coastal towns. You know, it's certainly, they certainly needed that massive injection of money. But it's also an absolute blooming tragedy, isn't it? Because, you know, you have people who are living in, you know, static homes so that people can rent their houses or people who can't rent anything at all. And that's a really worrying thing. Yeah. But, um, 
it seems to be that there's a, there's a housing crisis going on nationally, but that Cornwall is a but particular microcosm, um, yeah. and, and the coast. I think I think I read recently that the biggest that Cornwall has the biggest gap between average earnings and average house prices of yeah. any county in in the country. Yeah. Um, and you do one question I have for you, which is possibly slightly uncomfortable one. How do you feel as someone who has a house in London and has a house in here. Devon about writing about this? And do you feel any squeamishness? Yes, or? yes, I do. I do. I mean, you know, to, to not sound like the world's biggest hypocrite, where we bought was very deliberately not on the coast, not in a village. It's far away from other places. We've got a ruined house just down the road. I mean, it's not somewhere that lots of people were clamoring to right. buy um, but I don't feel I can either be censorious to people who of course also want to you know holiday in Devon and Cornwall because they're beautiful they're mm. lovely and I'd far rather from an economic point of view people spent their money in this country than flying to Thailand or yeah. even to France you know we need that money but it's how you balance these things that is a giant problem. I mean, I'm very, very glad I'm not a politician because yeah. I don't think there are any easy answers. No, and it's, it's, it's hard to find. There's, there's sort of no, there's no individual to blame. It's something no. about the way that the system works. You know, you could equally say to someone who lives in Cornwall and who sells their house to someone from London, well, why are you selling why it to them? It you to know, them? But of yeah. course, they're going to make more money doing it that way than, you know, yes. it's, it's a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem. Uh, but it is problem, hard but, to know how it's going to be resolved. But fiction, at its best, I think, grows out of conflict and these, these problems. I mean, the reason why I so love, and I think so many people still read, the great Victorian novelists is that they saw these kinds of problems too. I mean, they were different, but they were just as acute, if not more so. Mm. So I you know, completely revere someone like Dickens who, you know, I live quite close to where he lived most of his mm. life. And you can still see these really terrible scenes of poverty and cruelty and injustice and indifference and so on. And, you know, you as a writer can't do anything except describe them and write them and weave them into stories. But, you know, my tremendous hope is that somehow if one does that, um, you can, as Dickens himself did, just by making people more aware of these things, start to change um, a society. And do you, without sounding, for fear of sounding pretentious, do you see yourself as writing in a tradition like that? Oh yes, you no, do? no I, I do. I mean, I hope that's not pretentious no, and, 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 and um, sort of conceited. But I think, you know, it is kind of wide open there. And there are, of course, other contemporary novelists who are also doing some of this. I mean, there's there's kind of a group of us now who are, as it were, state of the nation novelists, whether they're people like Jonathan Coe, who's mm, tremendously yeah. funny, or John Lanchester, I mean, you know, or Alan Hollinghurst. You know, they're, they're quite a lot of us now writing about the present. What I do absolutely detest, sorry, if you love it's it. It's always fun when people call it detest. Is this veneration that we have for historical fiction, because it seems to me to be both enormously dishonest, because we can't really think ourselves into mm. what it was like 500 years ago. We don't have the belief that God is seeing everything and that we're going to go to hell, quite probably, <laughs> um, as a facet no, of right. our you know, everyday awareness. I mean, there may be one or two people here who do still have that, but you know, mostly we don't. 
And that informed everything. We've just lost that, and it's fake. And I think the, the reason why people keep reading this historical fiction penned by contemporary writers is, to me, highly suspect. It's a kind of escapism, or you know, it's a way that you think, oh, well, I'm learning history as well as you know, reading, reading a literary book. And do you think, I wonder whether you think that there's a reason that writers are doing that, other than just that they're interested in it or that it's marketable. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to lay this accusation at their feet, but is there, in a way, the fact that it's slightly easier because you know what the, the mores and the, the, the mood and the morals of the society were without having to ask too many difficult questions? Yes, because yes. if you're writing about contemporary society, there's the chance that 10 years down the line, you may be seen to have got it wrong, or oh, you yeah. may be seen to have not really understood what was going on at the time and picked up on the, on the right things. And I think that's quite hard. Yes. No, it's a very high-risk thing, and, and also, not least of it, is, is the problem of libel. I mean, I first became well-known oh, with my third novel, The Vicious Circle, <coughs> which um, was cancelled by its original publisher because someone who was a very old ex-boyfriend from university claimed that he had been libeled as its villain. Uh, you know, <coughs> which what, makes it much what, easier to read about, which, to write about historical figures. Yeah, than much it does, easier. Um, and in fact, several people who write historical fiction have said, "Well, of course, you know, with historical fiction, you just totally avoid that problem." Yeah, everyone's so, dead. No one's yeah. about to come out of the woodwork. Nobody's going to say, we "I'm could, actually Henry VIII." You we, know? Could, <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that that story. We won't go into that story because no, it's a whole other a conversation. Whole worms, but. Um, but actually, it is interesting. Um, your publishing experience has definitely been, a, 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 to start with, is a very bumpy one. Yes. Um, and going back to your original championing of J.K. Rowling, in fact, in the late 90s, I think there is a whole generation of people that thinks of authors as, you know, A, well paid. No, <laughs> um, <coughs> sorry. She's that sort of strange <laughs> outlier. Um, yes. Uh, and that B, that, that I suppose publishing and books is a sort of rather jolly world to be operating in. Um, and, uh, you know, those, those experiences that you had early on and subsequently, I think, you know, have gone to show that actually it is really problematic. It can, it, be, it very can be problematic very problematic if you stick your head up above the yeah. parapet. And every time I do it, I'm very frightened. I mean, I signed the, the famous letter in defense of J.K. Rowling and, yeah. you know, was... was um, Thank you. Was was instantly sacked um, as judge of a competition and had really? torrents of hate on Twitter and so on. Yeah. No, I mean, because to me, writing is not just about this glorious thing of you know the English language and being interested in people and telling mm. stories. It's also about something much more serious, which is um, freedom of speech and conscience, and. You know, if you forget that, if you just want to go with the flow and be safe, well, you may have a much easier life, but you won't really be doing your job <laughs> at, its, at its most profound. And that's very frightening to stand up for what you believe in. I mean, I simply hate bullies. I can't begin, even as a very articulate person, to say how much I loathe mm one lot of people oppressing another mm. and also trying to shut them up. So, you know, I do get into these, these fights and conflicts, whether it's about supporting 
people of color, people who are gay, people who are women, mm. children, you know, I mean, it's sort of infinite. Almost any group can pick on any other group. At the moment, I'm writing about elderly people who are also, as some of you may have noticed, the new baddies that people <laughs> yeah. keep attacking in the press. Well, you know, I love people who are elderly. I think they're fascinating. Why aren't we writing about them? Why aren't we listening to them? Why are they suddenly these pariahs who are supposed to be incredibly rich while all the millennials are terribly... I mean, this is rubbish. But if you do that, you are going to run up against you know, a whole lot of people who just either want you to shut up or who are actively malignant. And do you think that's, <clears throat> I mean, I've heard you talk about your experience in publishing in the 90s and what that world was like. <laughs> um, do you think things have got worse or, or better culturally? Um, I mean, in I suppose Twitter, it's, unfortunately, social Twitter media. and social media is the thing that's really blown up in the last few years and it's, made it very it's a toxic. Double -edged, yes, well, it's a complete double-edged sword because, you know, Twitter is wonderful in that it can connect Next, you with yeah. all sorts of lovely, like-minded, interested, you know, civilised people. But unfortunately, it can also connect you to the other sort who are just, you know, a nightmare. Yeah. Um, I don't know yet. I mean, even the printing press, when it first began, had its, yes, its downsides. Yeah. Not, you know, all forms of communication between human beings can be for good or for ill. Um, you know, I just hope that the, the good ones win and the bad ones are just so boring and horrible that they kind of implode but maybe that's a kind of pantomime vision anyway we should probably stop talking about twitter because yes, uh, yes, <laughs> who no, knows no. where it might so, not so it's a different thing um i want to talk to you about repeating characters mm. because that's again something i think you've borrowed from some there, there are some writers balzac, that balzac yeah, in particular yeah, yeah. Was, was a very was, was a, a great um, proponent of this. You've taken characters and peeled them off as sort of minor characters and then revived them as protagonists in later books. Yeah. I just wonder wh where that came from. I mean, obviously you've been influenced by specific writers, but where the enjoyment is for you and where, what the motivation is? Well, because everybody is interesting and everybody lives at the centre of their lives, why shouldn't you give a story to someone who seems to be minor in one person's life? You know, they're all, you know, we are all equally valid mm. and interesting. And for me as a, as a writer and a, and a creator of plots, I often think, well, why is this person who I just mentioned in passing, why are they, um, you know, I've got a character um, who appears in a novel called Hearts and Minds, who's a journalist who absolutely, he's a magazine editor and he absolutely hates poets. <laughs> um, now, poets too, kind of haunt a lot of magazines because they're always desperate to get their, their work published. But I did sort of go on thinking, well, why does Quentin hate poets so much? So when I came to bring him back as a major character in The Lie of the Land, the predecessor to The Golden Rule, I suddenly thought, well, of course he hates poets because he's the son of one. And his father is this, you know, appalling, self-centered, you know, monster. So, you know, these things just grow organically most of the time out of those questions. Why are people as they are? And do you, find your, do you find that characters will bubble away in your mind in that you will sort of imagine, I wonder what has happened to them? Yes. I mean, are they sort of real in that way to you? Yes, no, I live with them all the time. And I, I think I'm, I'm a very annoying person. My husband's in the audience, so I could tell you. 
to live with because I'm often kind of living this parallel life and I think about it. I often wake up at three in the morning as an insomniac, worrying about some aspect of their existence or, you know, whether they're happy or sad and, you know, what, what the kind of niggly things are. So it's fun, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm never bored, but it's quite exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was talking to a writer recently who's a writer of, of, of real commercial fiction, a guy called Simon Scarrow, who writes oh, yes. these Roman Empire yes. novels, and he's about to write his, publish his 20th book in the series. So he's been writing about the same two characters for 20 years. Yeah, that's a long time. And that's quite a long time to have a couple of characters rattling around in your head. I mean, I get the sense from him that he's almost channeling them now. Yes. They've become yeah. so real. But you've avoided that because you sort of, you're never, you're never taking the, the one character and... All the way through. Yeah. No, and I hope my, my readers who seem to enjoy this, you know, don't feel that I'm endlessly repeating things. I mean, I did have one person who was a reviewer for the TLS said, you're... Mandy, you're very, very interested in people's houses. <laughs> uh, why is that? And I'd never particularly realised why that was. I think it's because I, I grew up abroad. So if you're an expatriate, you feel as if you never really have a home for a long, long time. Um, but that's just in a sidebar. Yes, I mean, it is a whole cast of characters. And, um, you know, you, hope, you have to hope that people um, who find some characters, and I do this very deliberately, you know, I very often start with protagonists who are quite objectionable and not wholly good people. Um, and if you only want to read about good people, don't read me, because, you know, to me that's deeply boring, and to me everybody is a mixture of good and bad and objectionable and, and heroic. But, you know, I hope in the course of what happens to them, they become more and more and more engaging and you understand you know why they are worth living with for a few hours um, I don't feel like I've spoken enough about the book um, <laughs> the problem with you you've got so many different hats that you wear and so many different interesting stories to tell um, but I also aware of the fact that time is marching on and I haven't asked anyone from the audience if they have any questions so this is possibly a good time to do that now there's someone with a microphone a roving microphone um, and if you do have any questions, if you could raise your hand and someone will run along and present you with a microphone. Uh, and, oh, there you go. That uh, gentleman Patrick. at the back might have an interesting question to ask Hello, about novel Amanda. writing. It's lovely <laughs> to see you here. You, you, in the past, you've been um, wonderfully honest about a bad experience at school and being bullied at school. But you are also simultaneously a great champion of children's literature. And I wondered whether you could talk a bit about literature as an escape, perhaps when you were a child? And is that, is that partly where your love of children's books stems from? Yes, um, I, think it, I think it very much is. I mean, I loved reading long before I went to this um, horrid boarding school. Um, but it is something that is a noticeable feature in a lot of children's books, because it's a feature of so many children's lives, um, is that it is about bullying. Um, you know, I think if we're truthful, almost everybody, including people who are bullies, have the experience of that. You know, the, the, we're all, you know, fighting to be seen as the people we want to, to be seen as and not as this other thing. Um, I suppose the other thing that um, appeals to me is 
which is a which is a part of that, is the that children's books still have quite a strong moral component. I mean, they they do ask the reader to kind of make choices um, that are often quite uncomfortable choices. You know, are you going to stand by your friends? Are you going to put yourself in physical danger? Um, very often in adult literature, contemporary adult literature, people are not asked that anymore. And I think that's actually quite untrue to one's experience of life. Um, I think we are actually very often asked to make choices, whether it's between friends or whether it's to do something that's uncomfortable for ourselves that would help someone else. Um, I've also had the experience of um, being involved in two very horrible physical fights once when um, we came home and found a burglar in our house and once when I very stupidly some of you may have read about this in the Guardian um, intervened in a fight between two teenagers in our street and I do remember being utterly terrified both times but also very very determined that I wasn't going to let these things go without a fight, even if I got hurt. I mean, I got a giant black eye in the, the teenager fight. Um, you know, life is dangerous. Life is, is, is much more perilous and fraught than I think many of us would believe from literature, where everything, I mean, the kind of novel that does annoy me, and indeed TV series, is where everything is just so smooth, everybody's terribly middle class, everybody's living these lovely lifestyles, and um, you know, somehow we're supposed to be involved with the, their minute choices. You've got to be as good as Proust to, to really carry that off, I think. And I don't think it's true. I think we're all, you know, particularly now, we've all come through this horrible time in which we've all been really frightened, if not for ourselves and for other people. You know, that's going to have an effect on the kind of books that are being written. Maybe not directly, but just that experience of fear. Because few of us, I think, have, you know, now have remember what it was like to grow up when, when you were being bombed during a war. But that's not as far away as people like to believe. You know, our whole society could collapse at any moment. Which is not something we would have said 10 years ago. Well, I <laughs> would have said it. Well, you would have said it. I you would have said it. You said it in your books. But I've yes. said it in my books. Yeah. And, and, you know, this story, which is a very, um, ultimately a very dramatic story, there is someone in it who is absolutely evil, who is a psychopath. And again, we're very reluctant to believe in our lovely, beautiful England that, you know, people like that exist. And yet we know they did. You know, one of them went and killed, was it yeah. seven people in Plymouth last mm. month? You know, you can't deny that evil exists. And I think just thinking, just accepting that it does and imagining it does kind of perhaps prepare you when you encounter it that yeah. you know i think you are just that little bit less scared surprised yeah and scared surprised and i do that. think that children's books just to bring it back to patrick's question that is one of the things that it it does it kind of arms you psychologically yeah i remember that moment when suddenly 
adults were reading the Harry Potter books sort yes. of 20 odd years ago. And there was a real uproar amongst the sort of particularly literary elite that were saying, why are these people reading children's books? <laughs> well, <laughs> go ask. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can see. I mean, there's all, it's all there. Um, and, yes. there is a, and, and, and there is also quite often a sense of when you get to the end of the story, things have been righted that were wrong. Yes, <laughs> and that's but they're not going to, evil's never going to completely no, no, go away, exactly. which I also think is a good thing. Yeah. No, she was addressing all sorts of things that have yeah. become ever more topical. Yeah. You know, actually, things like you know racism mm. and and snobbery and the you know the sort of cruelty to children. You yeah. know, they're quite shocking dark yeah, books are, yeah, when you absolutely. look at them. Well, they aren't the first one, isn't? But they get darker every single. Well, <laughs> the, I think the cruelty of the Dursleys. They're well, that's the, true. The, real, yes, that's the true. really evil ones. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Anyone else got a question? Um, this lady here in the third row. Um, I was just curious about your use of place names. Um, I haven't read your latest book yet because it's only just come from the library, but um, I flicked through it and noticed Fall and mm -hmm. um, St Piran, which made me laugh <laughs> um, a bit. But you mentioned earlier about how you don't always like to play safe. This seems to be playing safe. And so what's behind all this? I know plenty of, I mean, obviously, Patrick Gale's there at the back, and I know plenty of people who don't use I know of plenty of people who don't use proper place names, but I'm just wondering why you don't. Well, that's such a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, Full in Cornish means fool, so that was fairly irresistible. Um, and I was thinking, of course, of the river Fowl and, and all that. It's partly, I regret to say, because of the libel problems that I had with the vicious circle. I mean, you, you know, the moment you, you, you say, well, this is an invented mm. place, just as it's an invented, you know, you can, you get a, around that. But also, it, uh, you know, there are things, there are specific things in places in the novel. There's um, this very important house, which is where Ginny's husband lives, called Endpoint House that is a kind of mashup of various grand Cornish, decaying Cornish houses that I, I know or have researched into. I didn't want the people who lived in those places to feel miserable. You know, you, you do have to be aware that there are real people who can feel they're being got at, and that, to me, is not on. I also didn't want to sound as if I was sneering or criticising, you know, real places, because you know, I love Foy. You know, I, I you know, the, the Hannah doesn't, um, but you know, personally, I do, I do love it. Although I see all its problems, and I also love St Austell, although I also see, you know, some of its problems. And I think when you when you make something that is too deeply rooted in a real place, I mean, London is so big that you can just call it London because there are a million different kinds of London. But when you're talking about smaller places, I think you do have to be careful and you do have to be a bit more sensitive. Is it a geographically different place in your head to the real places that it's, they're based on? I looked at a lot of maps of Cornwall, you know, so there are lots of different, you know, that, that whole south coast yeah. has got lots of different bays and rivers and, and so on. And of course, if you lived there, you know, it's all incredibly particular. To, to that place. But it's also true that there's, there are lots of, you know, towns or villages on the coast and just inland yes. there's the sort of poor cousin. Yes. Um, I live near Coverack on the Lizard and St Kevin is just inland and it's, an hour, it's a mile and a half away but Coverack is, has got the pretty beach 
and it's got the Airbnbs, and St Kevin has got a you know town square where all the shops are closed. Yes. You know, and it, and and, and that, I think that's paralleled. You could probably go, go yeah, along the whole the coast, and coast, you would find yeah. little versions of that yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the thing that I was aware it wasn't just one place. It was repeated yeah, yeah. again and again. So it is, and and because this vision of Cornwall, you know, in a sense, is also standing in for what's happening to. Britain, because mm. it's not only Cornwall or Devon, it's all over yeah. this country. And indeed, it's all over the world, actually, that all these places that have these beautiful coastal towns and villages, this is, this is a repeated problem. You know, it's not just local and particular. You get it in America, even in India, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's all over. And, you know, that is very rich to write about in, in fiction. Have we got any more questions? Oh, lady in the front row. I wondered, um, in view of your feelings about J.K. Rowling and free speech in general, um, would you expect an author to be disinvited from a literary festival because of a wayward adjective in a novel? I think that's quite a loaded question. Um, Next. No. <laughs> Well, personally, no. I know that decision was taken with great um, pain and anguish. Um, I have also been one of the few people who've tried to stand up for um, Kate Clanchy. I mean, I have a free speech yeah. important, yeah. Well, I agree, but then I'm not, you know, having to um, organise the finances of a festival and um, which I know are, are, you know, always on a knife edge. Um, you know, these, these are deep, deep issues. I've been very outspoken and I've been told off uh, for being outspoken. Um, not and by me. Not by you, thank you. Um, you know, it, it is, it is a, a horrible, horrible mess, all that. Um, I feel a lot of sympathy for everybody who's involved. You know, so often where you have these conflicts, um, you know, everybody has, has a right to be heard and everybody is um, very upset and angry. Um, it, would, it would take a lot longer than we've got to discuss it all. Um, I think to be... Can you... I think to be fair on Amanda here, um, so I'm Pippa, I'm the chair of the book festival um, and we, as everyone probably here knows because we sent an email about the position we decided to take. Um, if anybody wants to talk about it, please come and talk to us. So we made, did make a decision which, it was a difficult decision to make, it was controversial in some quarters and not controversial in other quarters and if we'd done it the other way around it would have been the same. If people want uh, our position now, I'm happy to give it. But if you just want to come and talk to me individually, also happy to give it. Okay, so we took a different position to Amanda. Kate Clancy was not invited to the book festival to talk about her book. Her book was written in 2019. It was a memoir about her life as a teacher told through anecdotes of children she'd taught. She was invited actually to do workshops with our children's days on Friday and to run a, a poetry workshop at the weekend. Following the Twitter storm, for want of a better word, 
Um, as everyone knows here, I imagine, <coughs> there were this huge shorori occurred. We, as a committee, decided to ask Kate to stand down from doing our teachers, our teaching days. In part, that was to do with reading the book and the hurt that some of the comments were made, that were made. But largely, the reason we did it was because we chose to stand in solidarity with the uh, principally free women of color, free authors, who had given Kate bad reviews on, on, on her book and were then subjected to really hideous um, abuse, death threats, racial abuse, um, and with all due respect to Kate and the world of publishing, which obviously we are supporting, there was a big rallying of support around Kate Clancy from the powers that be, from the kind of powerful end of the literary world. And those three women didn't really get that support. And uh, so our decision was to stand in solidarity with those women. We weren't making a judgment about Kate's book. I've read Kate's book. Most of the committee have read Kate's book. We can, you know, we can take a view on Kate's book individually. Um, but the decision we made was around standing in solidarity with people who faced abuse. That was why we did it. It's, it's always very difficult, all these, all these things. I think, yes, I mean, you know, this, this, this is what's so, so tough if you are trying to um, write about, whether it's in fact or fiction, you know, real, live, changing issues and conflicts between people. You know, sometimes people will get very hurt and offended and unfortunately the world that we now live in um, you know it's it's more and more polarized and mm. everything that um, people think or say that they put on Twitter is kind of immediately amplified that's not always a helpful thing to do um, but you know I do think that I mean I am on the side of authors so <laughs> Um, that may sometimes be in conflict with other groups of, of people. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it is a, a vexed and ever-changing scene. It really is. Scene. Um, shall we have a nice jolly question to end on? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, over here. Make sure it's jolly. <laughs> you were talking earlier about the power of books both to be... Um, negative and positive, and mentioning sacred texts that you might have in your own life. And I wondered, Amanda, if you have any particular favorite books that you'd uh, like to share with us. Which are the ones books. you turn to in times of trouble? Gosh, I have so many. Um, I mean, not sacred, but at the moment I'm rereading the whole of Trollope because I've got the very great honor of um, doing the annual speech next November for the Trollope Society. And what I'm going to be uh, talking about is the way that he is called Love for Sale, about um, the proposal scenes in, in his books, the marriage proposal scenes. Um, Trollope, if anybody hasn't discovered him, is one of the greatest bombs to human existence. I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's always conflict, but it's not this violent or 
indeed vulgar conflict that, that you know, perhaps <laughs> I go in for a bit more. Um, they're nearly always to do with who someone is going to marry and how much they're going to be influenced by money. Um, I am always fascinated by those, those questions and it's particularly fascinating in the Victorian era because of course a gentleman or woman was not supposed to work and earn their money. They were supposed to either farm and have you know, money from, from that or they were supposed to marry it. So the effect of it was that you know, people who condemned um, professional work would basically sell their children in order to ensure a, a secure you know, <laughs> lifestyle for them. Um, and so I suppose one of my sacred texts from that point of view is a very lovely novel called Dr. Thorne, which is um, about this lovely young woman who's believed to be illegitimate but has been adopted by this incredibly lovely doctor in a small community. And she's in love with the son of you know, the local knob and it's whether or not they're going to be able to marry. And it's so lovely. If you love Jane Austen, I think Trollope is, you know, as good, if not better. Um, so that, that would be one. Um, obviously, Jane Austen. Um, as I've got older, I started off, in fact, Pride and Prejudice came on me like a kind of clap of thunder when I was 12 years old. I suddenly thought, oh my God, this is what a book can be. Um, but now that I'm older, the one that I love most is Persuasion. Um, you know, I so love that idea of someone who is, is older, is sort of thought to be, although she's, what is she, she's 25 or something, <laughs> incredibly middle-aged and past it. Um, and she, you know, she's, she's always loved this, this young man who's now a captain, Captain Wentworth. And I love him because he's made his money, he hasn't inherited it. So that's unique as well. Um, and they're just so beautiful. But I also love loads of contemporary novelists. Um, so they're things that are diametrically opposite to this. Pat Barker's um, Trojan Women and the Silence of the Girls, which is inspired by the Iliad, I think is absolutely magnificent. I can't understand why it hasn't won loads of prizes. But what she has to say about, you know, the women's version of war and the classic text that you know we Homer didn't give us but that she's imagined and it's it's terribly rude and it's terribly funny and it's also utterly brutal um, but it's also about surviving so it also cheers you up despite all the kind of rape and murder and <laughs> horrible things <laughs> well I think that's, that's, that's a good place to end partly because that's it's <laughs> The, the, the cheering up side of it rather than the bad. That's the great thing about this book is that you do, you know, it is a state of the nation novel. It, it does talk about, you know, class, sexism. It, it talks about regional issues. But actually, it's an incredibly satisfying read. I must say, I, I was sent it earlier on this year and thought, I'll just have a quick read of the first chapter. And then about three days later, I'd read the whole thing. Yeah, and it is that satisfying I mean, it's the perfect read to, book to be reading in these in these days. I think you know you learn a lot, but it's it's yeah, it's a deeply satisfying and very kind of well, life affirming and warming read by the end of it. Thank you. Well, the greatest compliment that I've ever had about um, not this book but its predecessor was someone who said, "I've just come out of an operation in the theatre, 
and I was going under the anaesthetic and I wasn't putting the book down. <laughs> and the couldn't understand why I wasn't going under. That's what I want. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's a pretty good review. Yeah. Um, great. In that case, I think we'll leave Thank it there. You you so much. Say something Bef before the very lightly round of applause, which Anne, uh, you're going to give Amanda. At the beginning of the session, we failed to let you know that we have a golden ticket uh, event going on. Yes, people are already looking under their chairs. You may find stuck under your chair a golden ticket. If you do, please take the ticket up to the table at the front and choose a book. Oh, there are three golden tickets in total. <laughs> Like Charlie sorry and the to disrupt your no, They're now all distracted by the golden I'm ticket. I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> a great idea. <laughs> uh, if, if only it were chocolate. <laughs> I'm assuming there won't be one under here. No. Um, anyway, whilst you're all scrambling around under your chairs, if you could just join me in thanking Amanda for a fantastic.